0: For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. There is no advance in the Christian life apart from enjoying fellowship with the Lord. When we're in fellowship with the Lord, we're also filled with the Spirit, and it is under the Spirit's filling ministry and His teaching ministry that we are able to uh, understand and assimilate the doctrine in God's Word so that we can use it to apply to our lives so that we can then advance to spiritual maturity. That is the subject of our passage this morning, so before we get started, let's make sure we're in fellowship, a few moments of silent prayer, so you can use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then we'll begin. Father, we do thank you that we have this time to study your word. Thank you that you have given the Holy Spirit who indwells us to also fill us and to be our teacher, to be the one who helps us to understand his word, to be able to assimilate it into our souls, to store it there, and that he is the one who uh, recalls it to our thinking that we might apply these principles as we go through life. We thank you for the sufficiency of your grace and sufficiency of your word that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. And Father, now as we study your word, we pray that it would not only challenge us with the importance of our spiritual life, but that we would also be advanced towards spiritual maturity as the Holy Spirit uses it in our own spiritual growth. We pray this now in Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Now we need a little review, it's been a couple of weeks, and so we need to go back and and look at where we have come from in the opening sections of this first epistle of John. One of the most important things whenever you try to study any book of the Bible is to try to understand the purpose of the author. The human author and the divine author have a purpose in writing an epistle or a book, one of the gospels or a book of history in the Old Testament. And if you misconstrue that purpose then that can skew how you interpret the individual verses within that epistle or that book. Also, the only way that we know what those purposes are is through a verse-by-verse study and analysis of that particular book. You just don't impose a purpose on it. You have to evaluate the evidence inside, and we have to look at the whole as well as the parts. And so one of the things that I try to do for you is to not only spend time on detailed exegesis and analysis of each individual passage, but also to back up a little bit and try to get the big picture. Sometimes we look so much at the, uh, at let's say, get out the microscope and take a look at the details of the leaf, as it were, that we lose sight of the fact that it's part of a tree, what the tree looks like, and that that tree fits in a forest, and what the forest looks like. So we constantly need to move in and out, as it were, down into the the micro... Uh, details of the text, and then back out and look at the macro arguments of what God the Holy Spirit is teaching us. So with that, we start with John, and we realize that the key idea in John is fellowship, that if we're going to advance in the spiritual life, if you're going to get anywhere as a child of God and grow to maturity, then what is essential to that is fellowship. Jesus used the word abiding in Him in the Upper Room Discourse in John chapter 15, And John also in this epistle uses that word abiding as a synonym for fellowship. That fellowship is crucial for spiritual growth and for the advancement in the spiritual life. And he introduces that theme in the first four verses, which is the introduction. The second major division, and this is what makes this epistle somewhat difficult to understand, is it has a brief intro... And then he goes into it like a prologue or a preamble from verse 5 of chapter 1 down through 2.11 before he ever enters into the body of the letter itself. And he is emphasizing major facets of fellowship. The problem they was running into was that there were those in, in, the, um, uh, in the church there in Ephesus, those who were students of his who had lost sight of the importance of fellowship and were distorting some of the teachings... That uh, had been handed down by the apostles, and so he is correcting that, and so, in his prologue from one five down through two eleven, he emphasizes the fact that we are to recover or he emphasizes the principles for recovering and enjoying the life of fellowship with God. We are to in john 's words have fellowship with God; it is an active concept it 's not a passive or stative concept of just being in fellowship, which has to do with just being in a place, but it is something that is active. We participate in fellowship. The, the Greek word koinonia is a multifaceted sort of word, and it not only has to do sometimes with the, the giving of something, but other times it emphasizes the receiving, and sometimes both are in view. The giving aspect of a fellowship sometimes is translated participation or contribution. John or Paul uses the word Uh, Fellowship. when he talks about how some believers in some of the churches were giving of their financial resources to help support believers in the church in Jerusalem, that it was their participation that was of value, and he praised them for that. So that's the giving aspect. And what we see here is that when we look at fellowship from the idea of participation, that we are participating in the life of God and benefiting from the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. That's the essential idea that is... uh, at the core of fellowship here. So, he gives us some principles for recovering and enjoying the life of fellowship with God from 1.5 down through 2.11. This is really divided into two sections. The first section, which we have studied, goes from 1.5 to 2.2 where he emphasizes the importance of maintaining the life of fellowship with the God who is light in order to advance spiritually. We have to maintain fellowship with the God who is light in order to advance spiritually. If we don't maintain that fellowship, we walk in darkness in verse 6, then he says we lie and we're not practicing the truth. We're not applying doctrine. And we are to walk in the light as he himself is in the light, according to verse 7. And as we've seen going through these passages from 1-5 down to 2-2, he outlines these three false claims. The false claim of verse 6, that claim to have fellowship and yet walk in darkness, or live a lifestyle consistent with uh, the uh, thinking of the world, then you're not applying doctrine. The second is in verse 8, the second false claim. If we say we have no sin, uh, then you're in self-deception and doctrine isn't in you. You don't understand the truth. You don't understand doctrine. You haven't learned that. And then the third false claim was in verse 10, the claim to um, not have sinned. So verse 8 is a claim that, there, that there's perfection And verse 10 is that, well, what we've done really wasn't sin at all. And that would be making God a liar. And there His Word is not in us. I want you to notice that He had gone back and shifts from talking about not practicing the truth. Verse 6, verse 8, the truth is not in us. And then verse 10, His Word is not in us. So, He he uses truth and then He uses the word word because He's comparing uh, the Word of God to absolute truth. And this is what Jesus said when he prayed to the Father in John 17 Sanctify them by means of truth, thy word is truth. So it is the word of God that is absolute truth, and it is just another synonym for talking about the principles of Bible doctrine extracted from the text. So verses five, 1 five to 2 2 emphasize the importance of maintaining the life of fellowship with the God of light to advance spiritually. And the recovery principle is in verse 9, to admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father, and He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, whenever we sin, we break fellowship, but recovery is based on simply admission of guilt, admission of the sin to God, and we recover fellowship. And then he advances what he's saying. The 1, five to 2.2 2 lays the foundation of the importance of fellowship and applying doctrine. Then he's going to build on that and like any good teacher, he lays down the basics and then he goes a step further. He he builds on it. And in two three to two eleven, the theme here is the importance of knowing and loving God to advance to spiritual adulthood. The importance of knowing and loving God to advance to spiritual adulthood. So this is the next section that we will just begin this morning as we look at two three. Now we have to remember that um, the background of First John. It has a the problem here is the an early version, an unsophisticated version of what later became known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which is the word for knowledge. G n o s i s, and they emphasize a secret knowledge, that you had to have a special insight, a special revelation, an intuitive revelation. There was a mystical element to Gnosticism and that it was only those who had somehow learned this special knowledge, this secret knowledge, had this intuitive insight that were admitted into the um, mystical fraternity. That's the way it worked itself out in some of the uh, secret cults, that only when you had that knowledge could you really be uh, spiritual. Now, to understand what John is emphasizing here, we have to understand some of the, of the thinking that was going on in the congregation in Ephesus and some of the false teaching that his students had gotten into. They were basically being influenced by the cultural, worldly, pagan ideas of the Hellenistic world around them. And we've seen in our study of Judges in First Hour... We've seen that how destructive the influence of paganism can be, and that's what Judges is all about, is how a culture becomes influenced by paganism and its destructive results. John is countering that, and one of John's messages is how to avoid the influence of pagan thought. How to avoid the influence of pagan thought and how destructive it can be to the spiritual life. Now, starting Wednesday night, we're going to begin a study of Daniel. Now most of us think of Daniel as a study of um, prophecy. But for the most part, or, or, while part of the book does relate to prophecy, much of the book relates to history, relates to Daniel's life in an extremely pagan, excuse me, the, an extremely pagan culture of the Babylonian Empire. He was not only in the Babylonian Empire, but when that empire was defeated by the Persians, he was also elevated to the second highest administrative or political post in the Persian Empire. So here is a believer, an Old Testament believer, who lives successfully and maintains his, his, his a testimony for God in the midst of one of the most pagan uh, societies, in fact, demonized societies, the occult arts, the, the uh, uh, magic arts were practiced there. And Daniel lived in the midst of all of this in a way far, I think, far beyond anything any of us experience, even in, in our perverted society. And yet, Daniel lived successfully. So, the three books really relate to one another. Judges, the consequences of paganism. First um, John, how to avoid the influences of paganism by staying in fellowship with God. And Daniel, how to live successfully in a pagan culture. And Daniel did that very well and was one of the most influential and powerful people in what in two of the most powerful empires ever to exist in human history. Well, the background problem in, in, in Ephesus and 1 John is the problem of Gnosticism or what was also called Docetism. Docetism, now these aren't words that we normally use all the time, so we have to make sure we learn the vocabulary. This is from the Greek word dokeo, D O K E O, and dokeo means simply to appear. And they had the idea that from from Persian dualism that matter or material things were evil and only the spiritual, or that which was of the spirit, is good. And therefore they had a problem understanding. How God, who is supposed to be good, could be truly joined to human flesh and be a real human being. Because if God were joined to matter, that would taint him and make God uh, evil somehow. And so, Jesus could not be the actual uh, tr- actual true humanity because that would destroy his, his perfection. And so, he was simply a phantom. He simply appeared to be real. He simply appeared to be a man. Docetism became very popular among the Greeks because it, uh, its dismissal of the significance of Christ's humanity uh, was, was something that appealed to the Hellenistic thinkers at the time because they thought it was a scandal that God became a man. So it was a compromise with these pagan ideas. The Gnostics thought that evil was bad, I mean that, that matter was e- evil, the spirit was inherently good, And so they were faced with this problem of how a good God could create an evil world. And the way they came to this conclusion was through a rather sophisticated uh, religious system where they had the good God, we'll put a G here for both good and God, had several different emanations. This gets real uh, esoteric. And there's a lot of similarities between ideas in ancient Gnosticism and ideas today of uh, they're called the New Age movement. It's just the old, the old lie repackaged in a new format and given new terminology. Well, in ancient Gnosticism, the highest of these emanations was Christ. At the end of this chain, which are related also to angels, at the end of this chain of emanations, you have uh, Jehovah the God of the Old Testament who is really a lesser being than God, and he's essentially evil, and he's the one who creates the earth and creates matter. And uh, uh, because of all the problems with that, the good God then sends Christ down to redeem the earth, but he only appears to be human. Now, what's the problem with that, other than, of course, it's not biblical? The problem with that is that it diminishes the significance of the humanity of Christ. Jesus is in hypostatic union. That means He is undiminished deity. In Him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is undiminished deity and true humanity, sinless humanity. He did not possess a sin nature because of the virgin conception and virgin birth. So, He is true, sinless Humanity. Now, in Jesus' life, He he demonstrated the sufficiency of the grace of God and was a pioneer of the spiritual life of the church age. Jesus' spiritual life was based on the fact that He was indwelled by God the Holy Spirit and filled by God the Holy Spirit, which had never before functioned in that way in history. In the Old Testament, spiritual life was not based on on a ministry of God the Holy Spirit in the individual life of the believer. Very few Old Testament saints were ever uh, had a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And the term that we use to describe that is the term endued. They were endued with the Holy Spirit for specific uh, functions or specific reasons. For example, if uh, David and Saul as kings received the Holy Spirit to help them function as kings as the leaders of God's people the priests some priests received the holy spirit the prophets received the holy spirit for the function of the communication of revelation bezalel and Aholiab, who were the uh, craftsmen the chief craftsmen goldsmiths uh uh carpenters who built the tabernacle were in uh, had the holy spirit given to them to give them skill in their uh working of the gold, the silver, the jewels, and everything that were in the construction of the tabernacle. But it wasn't the giving of the Holy Spirit for a spiritual life. It was to give them wisdom to function in their theocratic leadership role in the nation. So it only involved, at at most, I think, no more than a 100 or maybe a 150 Old Testament saints. So Jesus Christ pioneers a new spiritual life so that in His humanity, with the filling of God the Holy Spirit... He is able to face any and every category of testing that comes to man, and with the filling of the Holy Spirit plus the application of Bible doctrine, Jesus Christ never succumbs to sin, and He's able to handle every problem, every difficulty, every testing based on this combination of the Holy Spirit and Bible doctrine, thus pioneering the spiritual life for today. But if Jesus had not operated in true humanity, then this was irrelevant because he wasn't a true man identifying with us in all of our weaknesses, in every category of testing, so he wouldn't have been a pioneer for the spiritual life. He, According to their system, he could have provided salvation, but there's no basis for the spiritual life. So Gnosticism was a very subtle attack on the sufficiency of Christ and his the spiritual life that he pioneered for the church age. It's an assault on the spiritual life teachings of the New Testament. And this is why 1 John is so important and why it must be understood as addressing fellowship and spiritual growth. And it's not addressing salvation. It's not talking about tests of faith, whether or not, how to know whether or not you're saved. It's talking about tests of fellowship, how to know whether or not you are truly enjoying Fellowship with God and advancing to spiritual maturity because spiritual maturity is where it happens in the Christian life. It doesn't happen in spiritual infancy. In the same way that when you were 8, 9, 10, 12, 14 years of age, you couldn't wait to grow up and be treated as an adult because you knew that's where life was, was as an adult. Life didn't, wasn't, did not consist in being a child. Being constantly under the authority and control of your parents and not doing, and doing only what they wanted you to do. You wanted to grow up and live your life. And unfortunately, most Christians have a vision of staying in the cradle and they never really want to reach spiritual maturity. But it's only when we reach spiritual maturity that we really see the fruit produced in our lives, that we really glorify God with our life. And it's only when we reach spiritual maturity that we really begin to benefit from the and all the assets that God has given us in the spiritual life. So it's very important to understand that this Gnostic background was a direct assault on the spiritual life Jesus Christ pioneered in his humanity for the believer today. He pioneered all but two of the problem-solving devices, or stress busters, or spiritual skills that we talk about. I use different terminology to refer to these uh, ten techniques. The first is confession of sin, 1 John 1, 9, which is how we are re- restored to fellowship and recover the filling of the Holy Spirit. This is foundational. Of course, this did not apply to our Lord because He was impeccable, and He never had any sins to confess. But the instant we confess our sins, we are restored to the filling of the Holy Spirit, and we can begin, once again, walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. As we walk by means of God the Holy Spirit, we are able to apply doctrine. This is the faith rest drill. It's a technique, it's a skill, something we have to practice over and over and over again. Those of you who grew up taking piano lessons or musical lessons know how you had to practice over and over again. Or maybe it was ballet or dance or football or sports, and you had to practice drills over and over and over again until it became, became tedious and boring but then when you had to apply it out on the field that's when all of a sudden that training paid off and that's the drill in the spiritual life all of these uh, problem-solving devices are are skills they are spiritual skills we must practice over and over and over again and all the little mundane details of life constantly thinking biblically what promises apply what principles apply how do I respond to this in a biblical manner so that when we get into the tougher situations then what takes over is that training that, and, and the discipline that we have imposed upon ourselves through practicing the spiritual skills again and again and again. So the faith rest grill is combining faith with the promises of God, and that, of course, means that we have to know some things about the promises of God so that we can mix our faith with them. The next basic spiritual skill is grace orientation. We have to understand that it's not us, it's God. It's not our plan, but God's plan. This involves authority orientation. It involves mastery of the details of life. It involves a relaxed mental attitude. And we did a detailed study of this the last couple of lessons over in Judges. So grace orientation means we recognize that it's not based on who and what we are, but everything is based on who God is and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And then the fifth is doctrinal orientation. We align our thinking... To the plan of God, Second Peter three eighteen says that we grow by means of grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. John in 1 John calls his spiritual childhood using the Greek word techno. We are children. Then we advance to spiritual adolescence, which John will call uh, the neoniskoi in 1 John two thirteen. Here we receive a personal sense of our eternal destiny. We begin to understand that we are living today in light of eternity. This is further expanded, Romans 8, 16 through 17. We understand that God has a destiny for us, not on the earth, but in heaven and in the millennial kingdom, and right now we're being trained for that future destiny. Once we move through spiritual adolescence, we get into spiritual adulthood, which is where we begin to really move and understand who God is because of doctrinal orientation, and that causes us to develop a greater love for God, personal love for God, and because we have personal love for God, we then can have impersonal love and unconditional love for all mankind. And then we begin to focus our attention fully on Christ. Now, these, are, uh, these three skills work in tandem. As we develop our love for God, then we understand that it's love for God that then is displayed toward man. Jesus said we are to forgive others as God, for Christ's sake, forgave us. As we understand God's love for us and we understand grace, this is why grace orientation is basic, then we can we develop love for God, and that is the motivator that swings us through spiritual adulthood. And then the apex is we understand uh, happiness. James 1.2 says to count it all joy when we encounter various trials because we know the testing of our faith produces endurance. Jesus said, my joy I give to you. And so it is this joy that enables us to have stability and contentment through life, no matter what trials, difficulties, heartaches we face. That's the blueprint of the spiritual life, and this is what Christ pioneered for us. The only two he did, that did not apply to him were confession of sin and occupation with Christ. The other eight are all manifested through, by Christ throughout all the testing that he faced. Now, John's students were in error doctrinally, because they thought Jesus was, mere, was purely divine and not really human. The error, the spiritual error that came from that was that they uh, reduced the importance of experiential righteousness. Experiential righteousness wasn't important because, after all, we're in the flesh, so the flesh is, is inherently evil and sinful, and we're just often always going to sin. It's only the spiritual that's good. So they created this dichotomy between the spirit and and the physical, and the result of that was that experiential righteousness, or actually having to live and apply the Word of God, was no longer that important. So to correct that, John first chooses as his theme in this epistle the challenge to remain in fellowship, to enjoy fellowship with God, to live in the light. That means to, to consistently apply doctrine. And the way he emphasizes this in terms of our, the structure is in one five to two two. In one five to two two he emphasizes the negative by use of these three false claims. He's approaching it from the negative side to show the importance of maintaining fellowship. The importance of maintaining that Christian the Christian life and living in fellowship with God. And then he is going to advance beyond that, starting in two three, to show that it's not merely being in fellowship, it's not merely enjoying fellowship, but it is being in fellowship, enjoying fellowship for the purpose of knowing God, developing an intimate personal relationship with God, which is the basis for moving into that advanced adult spiritual life. So he starts with the the negative, lays the foundation in 1-5 to 2-2, and then from 2-3 on, he is going to emphasize the importance of of. Advancing in that intimate relationship with God. It's not just being in fellowship. It is staying in fellowship. See, 1.5 to 2.2 two emphasizes being in fellowship, being in the bottom circle or the, or the right circle as we diagram it. It's, it's getting in and staying in. But 2.3 down through 2.11 is talking about the importance of staying, the importance of staying in that uh, right circle of fellowship with God, abiding with Him, uh, in our, in our diagram. So let's look now at 2-3. This is a very important verse and one that is crucial in terms of the interpretation of the epistle and one that is often misunderstood because on the surface it could easily be taken to mean one thing when it means something else. So we're going to have to do some specific exegesis here to make sure we understand what the passage is saying in the original language and then we will see How to properly interpret it. 1 John 2-3 begins with an and in the, uh, in the Greek, and by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Let's look, I want to read down through verse 6 because this is really one, one thought section. Verse 4 says, the one who says, I have come to know Him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. The principle is given in two, three. By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. The flip side, if someone says they know him, when they don't keep his commandments, he's a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, notice, shifts from commandments to word again, as a synonym. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Notice, he uses that same phrase again. By this we know that we are that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Now, when we see that phrase at the end of verse 5, by this we know that we are in him. It's going to introduce the principle of verse 6. And we have a by this we know in verse 5 and a by this we know in verse 3. And that functions uh, in, in a literary structure as an inclusio. It's like bookends. The first one introduces it, the second one closes it out, and the important principles are what, what are in between. So let's begin by looking at 2, 3. It begins with a conjunction in the Greek. The English, it should be translated and. The conjunction is chi, which is a simple connective in this passage. This is the, uh, used simply to connect an additional element to a discussion or adds an additional idea to the train, to the train of thought. Now, that's important because that shows that what is going to be covered in 2.3 down to 2.11 is connected to what he has said in 1.5 to 2.2. So, he's going to add something additional. He's going to step up the discussion a little bit. He's focused on the negative. Now, he's going to focus on the positive. He's focused on the basics of fellowship. And now, he's going to step that up to knowing God and developing that intimate relationship with God based on continued enjoyment of fellowship with Him. So, this should be translated and, and by this. By this is the Greek word in tuto, which is an in, the preposition in, plus the dative of instrument or the instrumental dative, which should be translated by means of this. And, by means of this. And, this uh, word hutos, tuto, is the Near demonstrative of the pronoun, demonstrative pronoun hutas, which suggests a something nearby. Well, that's going to come at the end of the statement. By this principle, it should be translated. And by means of this principle, or and by means of this test, we're going to know something. By means of this principle or this test, and of course the principle is what comes at the end of the verse, if we keep his commandments. So it starts off, and... By means of this principle or and by means of this test. And then we have the main verb. It's always important to look at the main verb. And you see that this verb is, is used twice in the passage. It is the word know from the Greek word gnosko. By this we know that we have come to know him. Now, if you look at that in the English, it looks as if both of those know's, are the same word, the same tense. This is why you have to get into the original languages. They are different tenses. And the grammar grammar makes a tremendous difference in understanding and interpreting this particular passage. The first use of know is a present active indicative. A present active indicative. The present explains the tense. The tense here is continuous. By this, we can have a continual knowledge or understand something it's an active voice which means the believer who is the subject performs the action of the verb we can know something it's up to our volition to make the to understand and recognize the principle by this we know something this can be a present reality because of the indicative mood which is the mood of reality so we can know something with certainty then the verb is a third person plural And we have seen that this third-person plural has run through the entire first chapter down to this point, and it primarily emphasizes John plus the apostles. But it can also include, in a a third, much more derivative sense, all believers, but it's primarily John talking as himself. It's an editorial I, an editorial we, and he's talking about himself, and by extension then to, to the other apostles, but also by extension or application interpretations john application is to all believers we can know something all believers can know something okay we start off and says and by means of this principle we can know something now this is introduced by the ver- the word that in the english now that really should not be translated shouldn't be translated. In the original Greek, you don't have quotation marks. You don't have commas and quotes and semicolons and periods. It's all done through the use of grammar. And the Greek word here is hati, which has can mean cause, because, but it's also used to, to uh, introduce either a direct quotation, an indirect quotation, or a principle. For example, in English, we might translate this, we know this, colon. And then we have the, the, the principle. Or we could say, and we know this comma quote. And then we put the principle in quotation marks. That would be one way in which we would do it. The that here should be left untranslated. By this principle, we know something. We know that we have, we know we have come to know him. We know we have come to know him. So, this is the verb gnosko. We have come to know. But this is the second use of gnosko. And this is the perfect active indicative. Remember, I said the first time it's a present tense. This is a perfect tense. Now, don't confuse that with an English perfect. This is a Greek perfect. Present tense in Greek means, usually emphasizes continuous action or action taking place in present time. The perfect tense indicates action that was completed in in uh, in past time. It took the action was completed in the past, but the results go on. And sometimes the perfect indicates the present results of a past completed action. Sometimes it's indicated the emphasizing the completion of the past action. Those are just slight, nuancel, uh shifts. The intensive perfect, which this is, is going to emphasize the present results, the present reality of a completed past action. So by this, So it should be translated as it is in the New American Standard. By this principle we know... We have come to know Him. We have come to, to have a relationship with Him, is what knowledge means here, and we'll get into the interpretation of that in just a minute. Uh, let's finish parsing the verb. It's a perfect tense. It's an intensive perfect, emphasizing present reality of a past action. Its active voice, meaning the subject, that is, we, the believer, uh, perform this action of knowing. And its indicative mood, indicating the certainty and the reality of of that knowledge. By this we know that we have come to know Him. And then we have the principle, if we keep His commandments. By this we know that we have come to know Him. Him is the accusative of autos and indicates the direct object of the verb. The object of our knowledge in this case is Him, which could be in the passage either Jesus Christ or God the Father or both. And I think that uh, John keeps it intentionally vague because for him, God the Father and the Son are one. So, it refers to both of them, this intimate knowledge of God. Now, what does it John mean by knowing God? There's the rub. See, this is the important interpretive problem in this passage. What does John mean by knowing God? Well, let's take this apart logically and try to understand what the options are. The first option is that knowing God might mean to know about God. That is, to know certain academic truths about God, to know certain facts about God, to ascertain certain theological information about God, or to know what the Bible teaches about God. Now, there's a lot of people who are not Christians, not believers, but they understand certain academic things about what the Bible says about God, and uh, what God might be like if you're, if you're a believer. This is simply like, this is nothing more than knowing something about someone, but it doesn't involve any kind of personal or intimate knowledge or having a relationship with that person. For example, you might be interested in a particular job, going to work for a corporation, and you investigate that corporation, get on the internet, you find out a lot of information about the company, you find Uh, their net worth, you find out what their sales figures are, you find out uh, maybe who some of the key people are that you might be involved with, you find out about their backgrounds, their education, their experience, but that doesn't really tell you certain things about the company. You have to go there, you have to spend some time with the people. They may be people you don't get along with, they may have personalities you don't like, there may be a culture in that company that that you don't uh, like or approve or, or it's not the way you would like to do things. So academic knowledge is not personal knowledge. Same thing happens if some of you might remember back when you were young in high school or college dating somebody or you got interested in somebody, you looked across the room and saw some good-looking girl or nice-looking guy and you asked your friends, hey, do you know them? Tell me about them. Where are they from? Who are they? And you start getting information about them, but that doesn't mean you know them as a person. Then after you find out a few things about them, you find out they're not involved with anybody, then you might ask them out and go out on a date. And, and then you begin to get to know who they are personally because you're spending time with them. That's, that's fellowship. You're spending that time together, that social, social fellowship, and you learn the, who they are. And that goes beyond just the simple facts. Now, we can learn certain facts about God in terms of His essence, that God is sovereign, He's righteous, He's just. He's love. He's eternal life. He's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, veracity, and immutability. But that doesn't mean we know God. We can know that God exists as a trinity. He exists as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit for all eternity. And that there are three distinct persons, and yet they are one in essence. But that doesn't mean we know God. We know some things about God. So that's the first option. To know God here would simply mean to have academic knowledge about God and that doesn't seem to be what John is talking about here. He's talking about a more intimate relationship because the context, of course, is fellowship. So let's look at the second option. This is one that is more often chosen by people and it equates knowing God to salvation. To know God is the same as to have saving faith, to have genuine saving faith, to uh be actually a member of the royal family of God and they would paraphrase this perhaps by this we know that we have that we are saved if we keep his commandments see then this becomes a test of salvation how do you know if you're really saved and this is the position of lordship salvation that the way you know you're really saved is that you keep his commandments if you're a believer over the course of time according to Lordship, salvation, you will manifest uh, an obedience to the commandments of God. If you claim to believe in Christ as your Savior at one point in life, but then you fail to be obedient and keep His commandments, and they would say, well, the faith that you had was not a genuine faith. It was not a saving faith. It was a false faith. Well, the Bible never really categorizes that kind of faith. There's no biblical basis for that but that is the contention of lordship salvation. Lordship salvation people contend that salvation is by faith in Christ, by believing in Christ, but the only way we can know with certainty that our faith is real or is genuine saving faith is if the believer lives a life that is generally characterized by obedience to God's command. This is part of what Calvinists call uh, the perseverance of the saints. A couple of weeks ago, we went through the core beliefs of, of Calvinism, which are outlined under the acronym TULIP. T for total depravity. U is for unconditional election. The L is for limited atonement, and we saw that that was contradicted by 1 John, uh, two two that Christ died for the sins of the whole world. The I is for irresistible irresistible grace, and the P is for perseverance of the saints. That is much more than simple eternal security. Perseverance of the saints is the doctrine that of Calvinism that if you are a true believer, you will continue to persevere in obedience to the Scripture until you die physically, and if you fall away, then you really weren't saved. So the only way you have real assurance of salvation, according to Lordship Salvation, which is present in almost every church today, it's just become so prolific, that you can't know you're saved until until you die. Because what might happen in those last minutes is you might renounce Christ, and then you didn't persevere. Now, this was brought home to me by... Something I read recently really surprised me because of the people involved, but it, it, I never heard this phrase before. Is that about a year ago, James Montgomery Boyce, who Dr. Boyce was the well-known uh, pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, which was uh, <coughs> uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse's old church. And um, Boyce had been there for many years. He's published quite a number of books, and he's a well-known uh, Calvinist speaker and author and teacher. And he was on his deathbed. At that same time, this was last June sometime, at that same time, R.C. Sproul, who's another, much younger, I think R.C.'s in his 50s now. Sproul has written a number of books. He's a very popular radio program, and he's influenced people all over the country. He was having his annual Ligonier Conference down in, a, uh, I think that's in the Pittsburgh area. And at, it was at that time that Boyce was on his deathbed. So, Sproul began the conference by announcing Boyce's impending death and telling everyone that they needed to pray that he would persevere and die in the faith. That he would die in the faith. Now, I had never heard that terminology before, but it's pure lordship. He needed to die in the faith. And then when a few days later Boyce did go to be with the Lord, Sproul announced that he had indeed persevered and had died in the faith. So, for even though the Lordship crowd believes in eternal security, they have sort of a, a back-ended uh, trap door on this thing. That, well, if you sin or you get into extended carnality, it's not that you lose your salvation; it's that you just weren't ever truly, genuinely saved. You did, and, and that's because the Lordship interpretation of First John is that these are tests of faith, and they would take knowing God here as equivalent to having a saving. Relationship with God, and that would be evidenced by keeping His commandments, and therefore, if you didn't have a lifestyle characterized by keeping His commandments, then you weren't truly, genuinely saved. But this is just fallacious. In fact, it is actually absurd. Their uh, underlying assumption is that a person can believe the gospel and not have saving faith. The idea is that a person can believe the gospel and not know whether or not it was real belief. That must mean that people are basically stupid. That Their idea is that you can't know what kind of faith you have. Of course, one way they get around this is by attempting to show that there can be a false faith or a pseudo-faith. And this is based on a misunderstanding of John chapter 2. You remember the passage. We've dealt with it many times. In John chapter 2, Jesus performs many signs and miracles. He goes into the temple and he throws out all the money changers in the temple. And then at the end it says, and many believed in him. Same terminology John uses over and over and over again in the gospel to express the condition of salvation as faith in Christ. It says many believed on him. And then the next verse it says, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. And all this lordship crowd always says, see, they weren't really saved because if they were, Jesus would trust himself to them. Well, that's just absurd. Number one, exegetically it's fallacious because every place else in the gospel John uses that same Greek phrase, believe in Him, believe in Him, believe in Him, to express the condition of the gospel. So here it's got to mean the same thing. But secondly, it's the assumption that just because somebody's a believer that that makes them automatically trustworthy. Now that's extremely naive. Anybody who's been around Christians for long know that just because you're a believer doesn't mean you're trustworthy. You still have a sin nature and you're still capable of all the uh, vast array of deceptive sins and horrible perverted practices of any unbeliever. And it's an extremely idealistic view of uh, salvation. It's, it's just absurd. But let's look at some other passages to, to substantiate this. For example, in John 11, 25, and 26, Jesus is talking to Martha at the time of Lazarus' death. Jesus has now showed up. Lazarus has been in the grave for four days. And Martha comes out to meet Jesus, and Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, Notice how Jesus doesn't say, He who believes and keeps my commandments. He who believes and perseveres. He says, He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now, what's the key word in this passage? Now, it's on the overhead and it's highlighted. So, so, even if you're sleepy, you ought to still figure it out. The key word is believe. You know, I'm always amazed today that you get out into pop evangelical culture and nobody seems to be able to articulate the gospel clearly at all. They all want to invite Jesus into your life, invite Jesus into your heart, praise His prayer. He doesn't say any of that in Scripture. Jesus doesn't say, if you invite, Je- invite me into your life, He doesn't say, if you uh, invite me into your heart, He doesn't say, everyone who lives and um, uh, has an experience with me, He doesn't say, everyone who lives and walks an aisle, He doesn't say, everyone who lives and invites me into their life. He doesn't use any of this popular terminology that is prevalent today everywhere. Nobody states it clearly. It just believe, to trust. He doesn't even say everyone who lives and tells God that, um, that they believe in me. So God knows what you believe. You don't have to tell it. I may mean, come as a surprise to some of you, but God's omniscient, and that means he knows every single thought and everything we believe at every given moment. So Jesus just tells to Martha, do you believe this? And look at Martha's question. First of all, she clearly understands the question, and she knows what she believes. Of course, Calvinist says you can't really know that. But she said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ. And she uses a perfect active indicative, of pistuo to express the fact that it's perfect. It's past action with results that go on forever. I have believed. I believed in the past and the results of that go on forever that salvation is not lost i have believed that you are the messiah the son of god even he who comes in to the world again we can look at jesus question of the blind man in john chapter 9 35 to 37 there jesus said that um, the, heard the story that the blind man had been put out by the jews and finding him he said do you believe in the son of man Notice, once again, at the sake of boring some of you, he doesn't say, did you invite the Son of Man into your life? He doesn't say, did you invite the Son of Man into your heart? He doesn't say, did you repent of all your sins and um, walk the aisle or any of that? He says simply, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answers, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said, you have both seen him and he is the one who is talking to you. The issue is belief and the assumption is, that an individual has enough uh, brain cell energy to be able to figure out whether or not he believes something or not. It is not based on some extraneous test of obedience. This is clear also in John 3.18, where the issue for salvation is belief. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed, not because he didn't invite Jesus into his heart, not because he didn't repent, but because he, or because he didn't keep the commandments, but because he didn't believe. The issue is faith alone in Christ alone. It's not inviting Jesus anywhere. Besides, we don't invite Jesus anywhere. He's the one who calls us. He's the one who invites us. He's the one who said, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden. We don't invite him anywhere. That is arrogance, and it's a false gospel. And there are many people, that's all they've done, and technically, I have to say, on the basis of the Word of God, they're not saved. If they never believed in Christ as their Savior, they're not saved. Now, they may muddy it up with a lot of confused terminology because they've are not they they've been influenced by somebody who's not smart enough to read the Bible and understand what it says, but the text says believe. God knows whether they believed, even if they can't articulate it correctly or they've gotten involved with some crazy campus organization that can't get the Gospel straight. So the point here is that the issue is believe, it is not um, obeying commandments. To claim that knowing God, therefore, is salvation would mean that the only way we can know we believe the gospel is by obeying mandates, obeying the commands of God. And just technically, in a definition, you look up the word believe and you look up the obey, they're not synonyms. You can't make them synonyms. I mean, it is absolutely... An absurd, ridiculous position. So that takes us to the third option. The third option for understanding this is, is um, that to know God is to advance in the spiritual life. To advance in the spiritual life where the believer has enjoyed fellowship with God and come to know God in a more intimate way. And John would then be saying, And by means of this principle... We know that we have come to have a more intimate, personal knowledge and relationship with God if we keep His commandments. Now, having a more intimate knowledge of God and more intimate relationship with God is characteristic of an advancing, maturing believer who's gone from spiritual childhood and is at least in spiritual adolescence. And what's the sign of that? What's the test of that? It is that we keep His commandments. One way you can tell how mature a believer is is whether or not They are consistently obeying the mandates and principles of the New Testament. The point is that a person can clearly be saved and still not know God. See, for the Calvinists, for the Lordship crowd, knowing God and being saved are the same thing. But what John is saying is it's okay to be saved and that's important, but you're not going to experience the abundant life that God has for you, and that comes only when you develop this more intimate knowledge of God. So he is saying that you can know God or that you can be saved and still not know God. For example, you can be saved and know a number of things about God. You can know that God is loving. You've been told John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes on him should not perish but will have everlasting life. So you know that God loves. You may know that God is righteous and just and that man falls short of that. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah 64.6 says that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Or perhaps Romans 3.21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. So you may know some things about God as a baby believer, but that doesn't mean that you know God. To know the basics about salvation isn't enough to know Him or to know or to have an intimate or personal relationship with Him. Understanding this is clear by looking at some key passages. Some key passages in their context. For example, knowing God is related, that is, having an intimate relationship with God, is related to keeping keeping his commandments. Excuse me a minute. One example of this in context, we have to go to, P, uh, to Philip. Christ interchanged with Philip in the upper room. Turn with me to John 14. I've said this before. 1 John is a commentary really on what Jesus taught the disciples in the upper room discourse of John 13 through John 16. In John chapter 14, Jesus has had is involved in this discussion with the disciples. And in John fourteen six, Jesus says to the disciples, or to Peter, after Peter asked his question, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, but through me. Now, after he made this clear statement of the gospel, he addresses all of the 11 disciples present. Notice at the beginning of verse 6, Jesus said to him, that's Peter. Peter had asked him a question back in uh, 1336, Lord, where are you going? And, um, and how do we know to get there? And then in verse 5 of John 14, Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And so Jesus said to him, that is to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then he says, if you had known me. Now in the English, you can't tell whether the you is you, uh, Thomas, or you, the disciple. But in the Greek, it's a plural you. That means it's y'all. If y'all had known me. He's talking to the entire group of the disciples. If y'all had known me, had really understood who I was, had really developed a personal relationship with me, y'all would have known my Father also. See, there's no question that they're saved. He got rid of Judas because Judas was the only one who wasn't saved. John 13, he said, you all have been planted." It's clear they're saved. So, knowing Him is not the same as being saved. He says, if you all had known Me. And it's very interesting the subtle nuance Jesus puts on this. He uses a first-class condition, but it's a debater's first-class. If, we're going to assume it's true because you think it's true, but it's really not. If you had known Me, if you all had known Me, you would have known My Father also. From now on, you know Him and have seen Him. And then in verse 8, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us it is enough for us now let me back up a minute I skip past that he said if you had known me now the word for know there is guess what What's let's, let's parse it it's a perfect active indicative it's the same verb form that you have over in 1st John 2-3 if you had come to know me so it's not talking about salvation it's coming to this more personal intimate relationship and here it's clear using the same verb the same tense form, if you had come to know me, if that perfect active indicative, you would have known my Father also. And the point is that knowing Him has is beyond salvation. This isn't equated to salvation, but is coming to know Him after salvation. Well, Philip says, he's still being a little dense, said, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Well, he just says, you've seen me, you've seen the Father, but Philip just... It's just too much for them. Remember, they don't have the Holy Spirit yet, so they're having a little trouble understanding this, this advanced doctrine. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you all, and yet you, Philip, singular, he suddenly shifts from the plural you to the singular you. says, Have I been so long with you all, and yet you, Philip, have not come to know me. Perfect, active, indicative. Same that we have over in First John 3. In other words, You can be saved because you are saved, Philip, but you haven't come to know me yet. You're still in spiritual infancy. You have not had that uh, more personal, intimate relationship with me. You've hung around for three years. You've picked up the basic doctrine, but you've never really advanced beyond spiritual infancy. So he says, Have I been so long with you, plural, and yet you, Philip, singular, have not come to know me. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now, I want to go on and skip down to verse... John 14, skip down to verse 21. Notice how... Verse 15, notice how Jesus continuously emphasizes in here that knowing God is related to keeping His commandments. This intimate relationship with God is related to keeping His commandments. Look at verse 15. If you love me... You will keep my commandments. He's talking to them as saved believers. He's not talking to them about becoming saved. And then look at verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Notice that there is an additional revelation, not apart from the Scripture. But an additional revelation and understanding of spiritual truth that comes as a result of obeying and applying what you already know in a spiritual life. God is not going to increase His fellowship with us until we first begin to walk with Him and apply what we know. He doesn't give us everything at the beginning. We have to apply what we begin to learn and obey those commandments. And then God is going to reveal Himself more to us, not apart from His Word, but through His Word, through the study of the Word, and through the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So, knowing God, therefore, this advanced personal love for God, which is what that equates to, is related to keeping His commandments. The one who keeps His commandments loves Him. That's personal love for God the Father. And then we learn that the person who does not keep the commandments, does not have the truth in him, and is self deceived. This is what where uh, John is going to go in first John two four. Let's turn back to first John chapter two. There he's going to show that the one who claims to know God, to have this intimate personal relationship, to be more mature, and doesn't keep his commandments, that is, doesn't apply doctrine, is a liar and the truth is not in there's no doctrine. In his soul. And this is parallel back to 1-8. Notice the same type of terminology. Back in 1-8, there's the self-deceived believer who says he really hasn't sinned. It's not a sin. He's really perfect now. And we're deceiving ourselves and doctrine is not in us. So this is how John is going to develop his, um, his whole teaching as he goes through this development. So in 2-3, it's clear that we're not talking about salvation. We're talking about post-salvation Christian experience. By this principle, we know that we have come to an advanced, intimate relationship with God. We're learning how to love God personally if we keep His commandments. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for what we have learned today. Reminded that our salvation is based on uh, faith alone in Christ alone. That we are saved by grace through faith. It's not based on anything we do, but based on the fact that Christ did everything on the cross. Our salvation is not even uh, confirmed by our obedience to You. It is confirmed by the promise of Your Word. Our assurance is based on the promises in the Scriptures. Our assurance is not based on any experience that we have or any lifestyle change that we have. It's based on the truth of Your Word. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is without faith, without hope, without eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make their eternal destiny certain. All you have to do right where you sit is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Scripture says it's by faith alone in Christ alone. It's not by making a bargain with God, not by moral reformation of the life, not by being involved in any ritual, but simply believing that Christ died as a substitute for your sins on the cross, paid your penalty, and now you have eternal life. You are trusting in Him alone for your salvation. Father, we pray that the rest of us would be challenged with the fact that we need to advance to spiritual maturity. We need to enjoy fellowship with you. We need to walk in the light, and we need to pursue our relationship with you so that we can have that more intimate, personal relationship based on a knowledge of your word that we might advance to spiritual adulthood and glorify you to the maximum in our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.